everyone, welcome to episode 7 of the Board Game Gambit podcast. Today's episode is All These Amazing Powers, where we discuss variable player powers in games. Joining you today, as always, is me, Nathan. And I'm Jackie. Welcome, everyone. Nice to be back. So, we're still holed up in quarantine, still playing games. Are you still going strong with your million games in a year or whatever it is? <laughs> yes, it is still going strong. We are definitely running low on games, but thankfully, thankfully, we have this thing called the internet where we can order things and they get shipped to us. So I have been <laughs> fortunate to continue ordering things. I have ordered unlocks. I have ordered exits. So those are all different escape room games. So they take about an hour. So it's a very sort of finite end to a game. So those are good to have when I have a little bit of time, but not too much time. So I've been getting some new stuff, but I have culled quite a bit out of my collection. I have a full cardboard moving box of games that I'm getting rid of off my shelf. After trying them? Yes, after playing them. Or some of them, I mean, are the one and dones. So like Undo, which are, I believe I've talked about them in a previous episode where you are trying to undo someone's demise mm -hmm. and you can't really play that again. But they say like, oh, if you didn't do well enough, save the game and wait like a few months and then redo it, which I mean would work for things like time stories those were ones that i feel like are so involved that you wouldn't remember it but this is just a very simple card flipping thing i mean it's literally just the story like in time stories you have to examine certain things and go and do different actions and bring people certain things and i really like time stories for those who don't know it's similar to undo but way more complex so it is a game where you are traveling back in time to fix something uh, how far in the series are you we're still on this one that's like a dragon thing it seems really weird the rules seemed really weird it seemed very clunky the things that it wanted us to do we've taken it out twice <laughs> and looked at it and i'm like i don't know if i want to do this that's the one that we're on it's prophecy of dragons and i think it's definitely one of the most complicated but not necessarily in a bad way it develops in two parts so normally the big thing about time stories is that when you're done with either your time which is your resource or you get stuck or you die you go back to the beginning and do it again which can be a little repetitive but is also the beauty of the game exploring things differently trying to do different things you don't need to find the same information twice but for example you need that item that you discovered being important that you wish you had when you reach another point prophecy of dragon alt has two different decks there is a moment where you reset which is thematically a little strange but game wise it allows them to require you to do more without having to repeat everything twice, but just to break it in parts. And that's interesting. I like the series. The series has now come to a conclusion how they are doing Time Stories Revolution with new ones. I like it, but I think it depends a lot on the individual cases. I know, for example, that some people really, really like Prophecy of Dragons and others didn't, but for me, it was fine. Have you tried the new Time Stories Revolution? I think that for those, I will wait for them to hit the secondary market. I wasn't too keen on how they finished the series. The last two felt a little rushed especially the last one. And the big thing about the Revolution one is that they will focus more on the overall story. But the one time they did it, they did a horrible job. Madame, which is the last one of the regular one, was supposed to bring together the overall story. So the story of the time agency and things like that. And it was terrible on that regard. So I'm a little skeptical. And that's bad because we really, really, really like the series. You guys really like it. You guys went all in. You got all of the different things. So it's sad to me that it ended on a sour note for you. It's fine. I still appreciate the game. We decided to keep it all, as you know, uh, because when, especially when people who are not particularly into modern board games come visit, it's so different for them. It's, it's great to guide them through. And not only you don't remember everything after having played six or seven of them, but also you can 
sit with them, explore the, the art, which is great in the game, and see what choices they make. And it's a very fun experience too. It's almost like rewatching a mystery movie. Obviously, it's not the same as watching it the first time, but to show it to a friend and see them expecting the unexpected. The reason why I went on all this tangent was because I was saying that those sort of one-and-done games are what I'm getting rid of a lot of. Things like Mystery House, the undos, unlocks, things like that, ending up in this box of called games. I make room for new games. <laughs> I like that you can still keep it in a box. Mine are sprawling. I have a lot of small games, mostly things that I got for a few dollars at conventions, and some of them went unplayed, and I can't wait to get rid of them. But again, I feel weird just trashing them, right? It's labor of love for the designer, and so I'd rather give it away to people, but I'm not going to ship it around. So I'll have to wait until I can see people and give them away. Yeah. So we... I've been revisiting a lot of oldish games. Recently, we have been doing an effort with Anna, my wife, to purposely go to things that we hadn't played in a while. And we brought out Castle of Burgundy, which is by my man, Stefan Feld. And it's still such a great game. Actually, we have played a lot of Feld in general because they are prominent on our shelf. And so whenever we are browsing for something, they are the first one to fall under our side. Castle of Burgundy is so simple. I played it with my mom even. But it's still so good. You roll the dice, you use the dice to either choose what you want for your kingdom or build it in your kingdom. Like you you draft from a common pool these building projects and then you actually build them and you're trying to complete areas and each building, there are like 10 buildings and another few other things that you can do. They each have a different effect, which is very simple mechanically, but I still find it very fun, especially because... It gets complex enough that it keeps me entertained, but it's not stressful, right? And that's a great, great little game, I think. I don't remember how to play it. I brought it out the other day, and Scott and I were going to play it. We punched it all out because I haven't played my copy. And I was looking at it, and I was like, I have no idea how to play this game. <laughs> and so I we put it away in favor of something that I did know how to play because we were on a time crunch, as we sometimes are. <laughs> I think it's much easier than it looks like and probably just starting going through the motions for in the first uh, turn or two would make sense. Basically, you roll two dice and then with those dice, you either use one to take something from the board in the middle, which is numbered, or you use one to place the ones that you have collected on that hexagonal grid that you have in front of you. And that's basically it. There are a few other things that you can do, but if you do two rounds of that, you already get a sense. And every time you place something on your board, it gives you something, either bonuses or abilities or points. And it's really, really simpler than it looks. The rules, I don't think they're fully written, but they have that very step-by-step -step thing. And therefore, it comes to a, a sizable rulebook. If they had gone the way of other games where they have the rulebook and then a summary of the facts, it would have looked much simpler, I think. Yeah, I will have to take it out again and <laughs> give it another shot to be the game of the day. But I do enjoy Feld games. He is one of my favorites. My favorite designers are very clear. It's Feld, Eric Lang, and Shem Phillips. He is very quickly becoming one of my favorite designers. I've enjoyed all of the games of his that I've played, and I'm interested in trying out some of the earlier ones the first one that we've played together was the raiders of the north sea have you played explorers of the north sea i have played one of the two i don't remember if shipwreck or explorers the one with the little meeples i found them not particularly inspiring to be true actually i played those earlier therefore when raiders came out i didn't look for it or didn't want to try it for a while i mean I wasn't actively avoiding it, but I wasn't looking into it. It was also, at, at the beginning, it wasn't distributed by Renegade. It was Kickstarter, so it wasn't particularly accessible. And having tried one of the first two, I wasn't keen on it. But then Raiders, it's really up there. It, I think it's a top 20 game for me. It's really, really solid. And it might be still my favorite of these. I really, really like Architects. I find Paladins of the West Kingdom a very good game, but I think Raiders of the North Sea, especially with the expansions, is still my favorite of his. 
Paladins is probably my new favorite. That one was just so good when we played it. I've only played it the one time with you guys. Mm-hmm. I did back the new Kickstarter thing. Oh, Vice Gound. Yeah. yeah. So I backed that and then I ordered because they came at a discount. I ordered everything. Yes, I know. I remember you dragged me with you. <laughs> I mean, and by, by, by dragging me with you, I mean, I asked you to buy it for me too. Um, <laughs> I mentioned it in passing and you were like, oh, I need it. Correct. <laughs> Correct. I stand by my statement. Yeah, there are a few that I follow. Fell definitely was the first designer that I follow intentionally. Michael Rienick, I really like. He was in Pillars of the Earth. He's in Merlin. The World Without End is his. And is Cory Cronizia, who's a weird designer developer. He's the fantasy flight guy, basically. And he's behind their most deep games. And so... Him I like, and obviously I like that, as I mentioned almost every episode, that galaxy, basically, of Italian designers, Tashini, Luciani, Gigli, who is not only that I cannot decide which one I like the most, even when I have the comparison, but that is often, it's very tough to do a comparison. There are the people behind Barrage, behind Taramara. They usually pair up in different ways for different games, but a lot of their combined results i like a lot coimbra gandostri hotel lorenzo and solkin and all of that comes from this group of friends that sometimes collaborate sometimes don't and it's really really up there for me every time they put out something new this year they're coming out with alma mother and with Gollum, and i'm interested in both just because of the designers. Yeah, I really like a lot of their things too. I just feel like Feld and Lang have a more distinct style Mm -hmm. than the collective. I mean, they do have really good, strong, solid Euros, but I do feel like I don't instantly make the connection, oh, this is a collective game. I think that when I play a Feld game or a Lang game, they feel very distinctive. Yes, and I think that Eric Lang in particular, I like him a lot, but he has also done a lot of things that I don't particularly care about. For example, he has been on Kickstarter recently with Unk, which, <laughs> which just finished its Kickstarter, and that looks very good. It looks like another hit for me, and I backed it. But he's also involved in a lot of IP work, which I don't particularly enjoyed. In particular, I really like the Star Wars card game that he did. And the card games in general, which is where he started his career, are things that I like. But a lot of the other things that he did, I didn't particularly care for. I feel that not everything he does. There are a bunch of games that I see them. Oh, Eric Lang is working on this, and I don't care. So that's why it probably is not as important to me as these others, like Cthulhu Death May Die or Arcadia Quest or the others all of these oh you have a lot of monsters fighting a few people and that's not necessarily a genre that i don't like but i didn't like his implementations of it and he did bloodborne the card game which was fine enough the difference is that there are certain games of his that don't even interest me while with feld at least i'm interested i didn't like all of them some i actively actively disliked but every time a new feld is announced and even when they are not super exciting like the last forum trajanum i still look into it quite quite happily yeah i agree with you on that though eric lang has done more misses for me personally than feld i have not played a feld game that i did not like i have unfortunately um there (laughs) there are very few actually so one is i'd say comparatively and i feel like feld would merit a long discussion on on his own but some are comparatively not as good. Like, they were fine, but people talked them up so much that I was expecting more. There is one, Amerigo, which I really, really disliked. And few that I don't look for playing, but that I will play if people want to. A lot of my friends were really into Feld until his most recent stuff, from Rialto to Forum Trajanum to Oracle of Delphi to Merlin. But I do like also how he has evolved from Bruges onwards. So I like his classics, Macau, Castle Burgundy, Luna, but I also like his new stuff, Aquasphere and all of that. Have you played any by any of these favorite designers of yours recently? Oh, so from Shem Phillips, the mm-hmm. Raiders of the North Sea, I have a video game version of this. Oh, yeah, I saw that they released it. How do you like it online? 
I really like it. It feels like intuitive the way that they integrated the controls of the game. So it feels good. I really like it. It takes a game that has a little bit of setup. It makes it instant setup. Do you play it with other people or against an AI? So you have a pass and play version, which is a little weird on the TV. Like if you're playing on the TV, like, oh, look away from the TV. <laughs> so, Oh, fair enough, because your hand is, is limited. Well, it is a pass and play. I think it's meant for an iPad or something like that, right? It, it's meant to play handheld like this because it's for the Nintendo Switch. I think it is meant for, you know, passing it, physically passing it instead of playing it on the TV. It's fun, like even with that. But I do play it more often with the AI So does it include any expansions? No, at this time it does not. Okay, so first of all, you are now disqualified because you are uh, using electronic devices to train. So you are now disqualified by my ongoing tally of Bridges of the North Sea. (laughs) Uh, I do think Fields of Fame really steps it up a notch for me. I know that people say that the two expansions are equally good, and I do think they are both good, but I have no idea how someone could say they are equally necessary. I find Fields of Fame, the one that introduces the Jarls and introduces kind of cards that interact with the Jarls, I find them way more interesting than the additions of the other All of Heroes. Especially in that you have another track, the Fame track, which can give you other points, and not simply the quests, which are fine, but are really a different way to spend cards from your hand. I do think that much like, surprisingly, another game about Vikings, Champions of Midgard, this is another game that went from a good, fun game to a very, very, very solid example of a worker placement, although with a little few twists. And that was what was great and what still makes it this and uh, Architects probably slightly ahead of Paladins for me, is that this feels different. The way you place a worker and take a worker, and therefore by doing something, I'm limiting you not in your options, but in your efficiency of options. And that's really, really fun to me. What else have you played? So we have been playing Watergate, which you mentioned in negative terms and uh, <laughs> not being interested about in uh, previous episodes. We have been playing it a couple of times, so we're not experts by any means, but it's very interesting how it feels at the same time very, very low on luck because you have a deck of cards that you draw from, but everyone has their own deck and you will go through each deck in every game. So while you might need to have the right thing at the right time, you feel you are not beholden to lack of the draw too much because you will get to all of your cards. So if there is a card that you consider particularly powerful, you will draw it at some point. But at the same time, it's extremely swingy. Part of it is that the two players will play a different number of cards every round depending on initiative. So the player with initiative plays both the first and the last card of his five. So it's me, you, me, you, me. But they have one more thing to defend, the initiative itself. And so if they lose it, then that changes and that can swing the game quite quickly. And I find it very interesting. It Basically, beside the team, uh, you have all of these cards that have either a value or an effect. And you can choose to play it for the value or for the effect. But if you play it for the effect, 90% of them go out of the game when you do. And so the timing of when to do so and when to use instead the numerical value to adjust the board, it's very interesting. It's quick, it plays in half an hour to 45 minutes, and it gives me a very good tug-of-war feeling. You can always play reactively, but the cards are unique. So, oh, I play this, and you cancel it with this and move something else, and then I play this event. Do you have a good event to answer or the one that you were planning to got away? The chance is now missed. You should have played it the round before, and it's great. I like it. I do understand what people say when they say that is a twilight struggle in 45 minutes, and I really, really like it. Despite the theme not being as exciting, part of Watergate for me is the political downfall. And this is more on the investigation and all of that, which makes for a good movie, not necessarily for a very exciting game theme. Yeah, I still don't have any interest in playing it. <laughs> it's fine. Despite your it's fine. despite your great explanation of it and backing of its gameplay, I, I still have 
no interest. What have you been playing? Like I said, I've been doing a lot of the one and done kind of games. The undoes, the unlocks. I know you're not a practicing, observant, and believer. But have you played a Star Wars game for Star Wars Day? No. Thematically, I played Tiny Epic Galaxies. Okay, we'll give that to you. Although the galaxy is big and far, far away, so it's not tiny. But we'll give it to you. Ultra Tiny Epic Galaxy. There we go. Ultra Tiny, because otherwise it wasn't tiny enough. Yes. It's like the pocket version of, of the Tiny Epic game? I didn't think there was another version of it. I think it's just very, 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 very small. <laughs> No, no, apparently these are made smaller than they already were. Oh, really? <laughs> because it's in the box size of a deck of cards. Oh, it's smaller than that. It's smaller than a deck of cards. No, the original Tiny Epic Galaxies, I mean, they're not big by any mean, but they are like 10 inches by 5, the boxes. Oh, okay. So this was made. Yeah, that's interesting because it wasn't small enough. I did play <laughs> I did play both Star Wars LCG, which I've mentioned many times, that Star Wars the card game, Eric Lang, by the way. But I also played Risk Star Wars, which, interesting enough, is not Risk. I don't understand why they went with that name because at the same time, it scares people who dislike Risk. And for people who are looking for risk, there is literally nothing about the game that is like risk. There are variants of risk that still have the idea of you conquer territories despite adding a lot of different rules and making it more interesting to me. But this has nothing to do with risk. It is actually a reimplementation of sort of an old game called The Queen's Gambit. Have you heard or seen it? No. So The Queen's Gambit, I haven't played it either, but it was for a while a grail game. It was one of the first good games with an IP, I guess. And so it still goes at conventions for like over $200, despite having been a Hasbro game, a Avalon Hill game by Rob Davio. And the new Risk Star Wars takes what I think is the interesting part of the game. So you are playing on three different battle scenes. There is a duel, there is a space battle, and there is a battle on the planet. For those who do like Star Wars, it is Luke versus Vader and the Emperor. It is the Battle of Endor, and it is the space battle around the Death Star. And you have a deck of cards, and each card can influence one, two or three of these different battles, but you have to make a choice. So at the beginning of each round, you have six cards. You choose the three that you're going to play. You program them in order, and then when you flip them and resolve them one at a time alternating, you choose which of the options to activate. So maybe you will push a lot on the space battle while I try to gain an advantage elsewhere, but I cannot just simply get you completely ahead on the space battle. And so deciding when to play and where is what's fun about the game. There is a lot of dice rolling, but the interesting part is I choose these three cards, so I am already pre-programming a little bit, but then I need to be reactionary in choosing among the different options to react to what you are doing. And it was a fun little game. It takes half an hour. It's swingy. And I think it would be quite easy to work on this for, well, for a designer that was able to do so, I mean, and use it for something more substantial. I don't know if the original one was bigger. I'm kind of surprised that you took the dive into trying this game because it doesn't sound immediately like something that you would enjoy. Well, that's what I thought about the old one. Like, despite my love for Star Wars, I don't go look for games that I don't think will be fun to play because an IP cannot rescue a game for me. What? <laughs> no, yeah, I, I have played a lot of games about IPs that I did like that I really, really didn't care. Actually, for the longest time, at least until Battlestar Galactica, but even after that, I'm still quite skeptical when games come out with an IP. That's why I was very surprised about Jaws being a good game, because growing up, I was used to the fact that if I got a game for an IP that I liked, I would be very disappointed. So this was strictly on the basis of good reviews. Everyone was saying that it was very accessible, very fun, very fast. And that's why, for example, I don't have the fancy version. There was a, a fancy black box version, but it was like 60 bucks. I got this for eight. And so I ended up with a simpler version. And I think it's fine. It has a cardboard Death Star instead of a 3D Death Star. But it's actually, again, it's light. Don't get me wrong. It's not a deep, deep game. Even Watergate, which is relatively simple, is deeper than this. 
but it does provide interesting choices. Every time you choose a card, you are torn about what you need to do. And it is partially because you don't know exactly what will happen with the dice, but it is quick and it's not a big fighting game, meaning you roll the dice, but they are very quickly resolved. You don't have tables to, to refer to or special abilities for units is very much an area control in the middle with two tracks to manage on the side. So it's a lot of hand management, basically, which I do like. But dice rolling. <laughs> sure, and I am frustrated from time to time, but it's fine. It is a lot of output randomness. You roll the dice and then see what happens rather than rolling the dice and then deciding what to do with them, which is how I like my dice to be used, but it is what it is. And I needed to play a quick game on May the 4th, which had been occupied by movies and work. And so we needed something to round out the day. Star Wars Rebellion was definitely too long. We had played the card games recently, and so we wanted to bring out this one. Cool, cool. So I played my copy of Dominion for the first time. Oh, you got Dominion. I had to get it. <laughs> so did you get copy of Dominion or did you go into one of those bundles that you were looking at? Everyone said that the bundles aren't really worth it. Mm -hmm. At least the ones that they've bundled in the big boxes. So I just got the base set. Well, yeah, and I think if you later want single expansions, they should be quite easy to obtain. First, because there are still new ones coming out, which I haven't played, but I have no reason to think that they are worse in any way than the old ones. Actually, probably they're going to be very solid. But even the old ones, if you wanted to. And I remember when I opened Dominion the first time, there is a lot of game in the box to keep you occupied for a while. Yeah, because, of course, for those who don't know, it's the original deck builder. Or it's touted as the original deck builder. And that game, you are buying cards to make your deck better and trying to get victory points. And the game ends when three piles are empty? Either three piles or the province pile, which is the biggest scoring one. It's a very solid game. It has a lot of replayability because you're only playing with a certain number of the sets. And it seems like... One that I'm quite surprised, honestly, that has never been in my collection up until this point. Well, it is noticeable that it still shows up from time to time in the most played games. There are still people who played it religiously. Its expansions still sell like cake. And it is not only important, because everyone talks about the importance of Dominion for deck building. I'm finishing up my Frank Legacy game, and that's an evolution of deck building. But it's not just that Dominion introduced a brand new category of games. It's also a very solid game on its own. I do feel that the more expansion you add, the more rules there are, it risks getting too overblown for what it is. Meaning that the good thing about Dominion is that it delivers this very interesting quick, both in time terms and in rhythm terms and some of the expansions put in cards that last until your next turn or that do uh, weird things with deck manipulation which while interesting on their own take away from that straightforward simplicity which i think lies at the core of dominion but in itself it's very fun i had forgotten how refreshingly direct it is it's really bare bones but in a good way it is here build your own engine do it go run it oh mine got clogged yours worked good job you won let's do it again <laughs> yeah i am excited that this has made its way into my collection and i'm hoping to get some expansions in the near future they have very good implementations online too i mean i don't particularly care when i play online i tend to play video games and since the pandemic that has been never because i'm so tired my job is normally not in front of a computer and it has been recently so i have no interest in spending time in front of a screen more than i need to but i do hear that people play it online so it must have an online implementation interesting what else have you played we got back to bang which is a card game that is supposed to be played with at least three. It's actually bad at three. You want to play it with more and then it becomes too long. So Bang itself is not a game that I play any longer. It has gone the way of Munchkin for me. But we have this guilty pleasure when we're really not in the headspace for a serious game. We get out Bang. We played on a two-player variant in which basically we are more interested in seeing how the different characters do. We have a big tournament in which is not me and Dana tracking our wins, but tracking the wins for the characters that you can use in the game. 
and so we cheer for them which also shows how light and mechanical the game is because true we play two players which takes out some of the interaction but there are very little meaningful choices to make so while i have fun doing this thing is this definitely more of an indictment rather than a praise of the game because the game almost plays itself and it's true with more players there is bang i don't know if you have seen it but it's basically the mechanism is very simple. You play cards from your hand that can harm other people and they can try to avoid being harmed. But the big thing is that you have secret roles. But the way it is built, there is a disparity. One of the themes is slightly stronger because the protagonist, the sheriff, cannot be hit by certain cards and has one extra point of life. In people who have played Bang a lot, often what happens is that you reveal the themes at the get-go and so it becomes, uh, oh, I hope I draw better than you. It, it really plays itself. You draw the cards. Oh, I have this card that draws two more. I draw two more. Oh, I have this card. I will place them down. And you have very few, not none, but you have very, very few decisional moments. And that doesn't make for a good game. I think on that note, we should move on to our theme of the day, which is variable player powers. Which is very apropos, because that's the one thing that is funny in, in Bang. Each character has a different power. Uh, there are 30 of them or something like that, and they play very differently. Spoiler alert, it will not show up in my favorite games with uh, variable player powers. Oh, but you talk so favorably of it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it is a game that I cherish because I probably played it over 100 times. It's an Italian game, so it got to Italy earlier than its general popularity, and we played a lot of it. The alternatives were very few, or at least in my range of knowledge, and so we played a lot of it. I don't know if my love for player powers started there, but it is now something that I really cherish in the right game. Asymmetric player powers, variable player powers... I think of them as something that informs your gameplay from the very get-go. So I left out from my consideration games that I really like, like Raiders, where you draft a crew which gives you special abilities, but that's part of the game. Or Blood Rage, where you draft cards to create your special powers. Or Kemet, when you can buy different packs. All of that I find extremely fascinating, but those are not variable player powers per se. I know it's an arbitrary difference, but it is one that is important to me. Variable player powers, when I think of it, it's something that, like you said, it informs the decisions that you are making throughout the game from the very, very beginning because you do something a little bit better than someone else. A specific action is better for you than if someone else takes the exact same action because you have this added power that is personal and drives the strategy of your play yes and i find that is interesting because there are certain kind of games in which that's inherent all of the games where you play heroes of some kind everyone has their own player board with their own statistics and their own special power but that's again for a different reason but that's also out of my scope descent nemesis roombound jurassic park danger each character has their own a power, but that's very much what the game is about. You have a descriptive, quasi-narrative aspect. What I tried to focus on were games where the core mechanisms were independent from the player's stats, and then the player powers modified those basic rules in significant ways, which is also why I left out all of the different faction games. Almost all war games, whether historical or more fantastic, or conflict games, you often have different factions that play differently. Uh, the Germans have different tanks than the Americans, or the Klingons have different things than the, the other alien space, species, or things like that, and they fight differently. But that was not what I was focusing on. I was trying to focus on specific powers that change a rule in a rule set that is built to be stable so i don't know if then mine will even fit with your definition specifically well i know from talking to you before that one of mine was explicitly rejected by you so um, <laughs> i am guilty of the same so one that i would like to talk about which i have talked about in the past is anachrony mm -hmm. by david Turtsey, richard aman and victor peter from mind clash games it made my shortlist it was probably my number four because you do have a clan, you do have a set, but 
that expressing, oh, this thing costs you less. So you still have the same options, you have the same rules, and there are only some of those rules that are specifically modified. And I actually think Anachrony is not only an excellent game, but also an excellent choice for this. I think that this is a good example of player powers because you're picking a different clan, but you also, even within the clan, you have even more choices because you can choose a leader for your clan. And depending on which leader you pick, it adds an additional player power that drastically changes what you can do. So it has dual layered variable player powers. <laughs> and also, I think that, I mean, it's not a foolproof test, but I think one thing that suggests that Anachrony is the kind of game that I'm thinking of, doesn't it come with the option to play with all of the same power? Yes. And see that, I mean, again, not foolproof, but that tends to be the indication of the kind of game that I consider for this list. Something that is built as if you could play all of the same and then you can add on the special powers. While games like The Sand or Nemesis would make no sense if you were all playing the same character because the decks are different, the dice are different, the armor are different, the powers that you have are different. So everything is built upon the idea that you are playing different things. While Anachrony, as proved by the fact that you can, could theoretically be played without the special powers. I mean, I wouldn't. I think they are a good addition to the game. But they are modification of a pre-existing set of rules rather than integrated as an accessory part of an engine. Speaking of Kickstarters, I cannot wait for that to come. When is that coming, more or less? Well, theoretically, sometime in the fall. Okay, uh, so probably by December you should have it, even including the... Delays, yes. Yeah, delays and everything. I look forward to that. I mean, Anachrony also, with the fact that Anna doesn't love it, I do like it enough, but we never got it. Also, I think because, I don't know if it was the only time she played it, when we all learned it the first time, it was a little overwhelming. The, the person who explained it to us was, I think, too focused on getting everything right and getting everything set up that by the time we started, I was already mentally exhausted <laughs> and that didn't help. So I much more enjoyed the, our games afterwards, also because I think that two or three is actually very good. So I would like for her to try it again, but I'm really looking forward to trying it when you get it. It looks very cool. I even consider going all in on the game, but I know you have it. It's not a game that I will play every week. I, Anyways, what games have you chosen for your list? First of all, I want to give myself a pat on the back for not choosing Escape. Um, because <laughs> Escape would technically qualify because everyone gets their little special power. My number three is Scythe, which is a Jamie Stegmaier game by Stonemaier game. And it has been out for what, four years? I think it's 2016 or something like that. Yeah. And it is, at the same time, a very solid mechanism-based game and one that is very evocative of its different factions. Each faction starts with a different power. They also start with a asymmetric position on the board, and then they can develop the difference further with unlocking max that give them movement powers and attacking powers and all of that. But from the get-go, one is more flexible on resources. One knows that they can score more on combat. One can move through water. Another one can lay traps for the opponents. And another one wants more from the random encounters that they get around. And one is simply easier to play because you can repeat the same action multiple times in a row. I know that people have played this out. I see that people who have played it hundreds of times are starting to having problems with balance and dominant strategies for one faction or another. I'm gladly definitely not there. I played it probably 20-something times, which for me is already enough for a game that big. And I think it provides a very good variety every time I have to tackle a new faction, regardless of the fact that you also get a different action mat. But just having a new faction is a different experience every time. Yeah. The reason why that one specifically didn't make my list was because I feel like the meat of what is different between the factions is unlocked as you go unlocking mechs. Mm -hmm. So I felt like it 
is not one that has a huge difference when you're first starting. Everybody has a very limited start, and I feel like, at least in the beginning, everyone's strategy is very, very similar. Yeah, and I also have a hard time distinguishing between the two. There is certainly a customization in-game. Also, you choose a card from the factory in the middle. For those who haven't seen Sight, it's a very visually stunning game. The art by Jakob Rosalski was actually the inspiration for the game. It's very Euro-y in what you do every turn. You choose an action and you perform it, and then you can spend resources to take an additional action that is connected to the first action. And you do that multiple times, so each turn is very small, but the end result can be quite impressive. A little bit like Blood Rage in that regard. These small incremental quick turns with big impact is what I really like. And you have different avenues to score points. You can control territories, you can develop resources, you can put workers on the board, you can build buildings, you can upgrade your efficiency, and that even gives you points besides making you more efficient. You can have one-time bonuses, and then it has a veneer of exploration and combat. You do probably one to three combats a game, and they are very quickly and very mechanically resolved, but they can be very relevant. And finally, you have some encounters to simulate the world you live in. But again, they are randomly chosen. You pick a card, but then there you have a choice. You have three options, each with the cost and with the result. And you choose amongst them. And I do think that it is a very solid game so certainly the fact that i find it so beautiful and so interesting plays into my choice for great on the list yeah i really like it i think it's a very solid game it has huge 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 replayability oh yeah for sure because of all the different combinations that you're doing the two different boards are different the different factions play so so different how do you feel about it at two players i don't think i have ever played it with two. Oh, really there are rules for the automa and if i were to play with two i would probably use the automa as well i played it solo and it was fine but just fine i wouldn't go look for it for solo but i don't know have you played it with you no but i own it well you kind of do right you kind of do own it (laughs) you own the the small version with the small hexagons well well (laughs) oh you have the ultra tiny version of sight (laughs) that's what it is right Yes, yes, the ultra-tiny version. Which is, obviously, I'm, for those who might not know it, I'm actually joking. Side, the base game, is an extremely well-produced game with this fantastic art, with plastic max, with very chunky, solid components. It's just that when it came out, they also came out with the even fancier version with uh, an extra board that makes it bigger and the metal coins and the realistic looking resources in resin which are obviously completely unnecessary and at the same time absolutely fundamental for playing the game so my number three scythe by jamie stegmeyer obviously for stonemeyer games his own company my number two rising sun so rising sun is an eric lang game from simon games or however they're being called at the current moment (laughs) and Rising Sun is an area control game where you are sometimes working with other players through temporary alliances to establish your people on the board. And every round there are certain battles that happen in certain provinces and you're trying to expand your people onto this board and have a stronger board presence to get these tiles that you're trying to collect for the end of the game for scoring. And throughout the game, you're getting cards, you're adding new people to the board, you're praying to the kami, you are doing all sorts of different things and it's a very laborious game i want to (laughs) say you have a lot of things that you want to do and you are trying to do all these things but i feel like the game plays very quickly i feel like every time i'm ready for another season (laughs) right at the end of the game because i didn't get to do everything that i wanted to do that is one thing for me that shows me that it's a sign of a good game is i didn't get to do everything that i wanted to do i think there is something intrinsically special about this trilogy of games by Lang, Blood Rage, this, and I hope Ank as well, that sets it apart from its other work, where here, the all of this that we are talking about today, the factions, the special power and all of that, are in service to a very solid 
very linear efficiency of mechanism. In Rising Sun, it is these mandates where you have a choice of four actions and you take one and everyone takes it, but you take it a little better, a la San Juan, a la Puerto Rico and all of that. And I think it works very well. I considered it because while it is true that you develop further by taking special powers and buying monsters, hiring monsters, much like in Blood Rage, it is true that here, contrary to Blood Rage, there is a difference at the very get-go. I feel what made me not choose it is, well, first, other games got to this thing of the asymmetric player power in a way that convinces me more, probably. But also, there is a lot that you develop in-game. What broke the camel back is probably that in the Kickstarter-based game, one of the factions really ruins the game for me the one we'll never use the fox clan people say it's overpowered i don't know i haven't played it enough to know if it's overpowered but it takes away some of the decision from the base game because for those who have played it the fox clan makes it so that player it's in every battle right before the battle again in these different regions that you were mentioning and that you're trying to maneuver to get in they get into all of them which doesn't mean they're going to win all of them. So I don't know if they are overpowered or not, but it makes it so that the option of locking opponents out and maneuvering so that you are the only one in a place or you're the only one in a place with your ally who cannot fight, it's taken away. And I feel that that was a failure of fully developing different powers. They don't make the game less fun. And so that was a big strike that normally doesn't influence me. I play the game and I just don't use that. And it's great also because I never, ever want to play it with six. So I'm definitely fine. But when discussing specifically the variability of player powers, I felt I couldn't in good faith put it on my list. The only time I've played it was when we had six people playing it. And it didn't seem broken. They did not win. <laughs> no, no, that's my point. I don't, I don't think we played it. We played it once, and they didn't win either. As I said, I'm not worried about being overpowered. Yeah. But great game, nonetheless. I have played it more than I expected to see when I checked my logs. But I haven't played it since October. That's sad. I want to play it more often. Okay, my number two is Champions of Midgard, which... I chose for the opposite reason, probably, than a site, an anachrony, or even a rising sun, which is how simple the implementation of the asymmetric player powers is. Champions of Migad, I talked about this recently. It's this mythological Viking-themed game where you build your pool of warriors, which are dice, you gather resources to travel, and then you travel, spend either gold or food, and go fight these monsters, which are resolved through very simple dice resolution, and you have some manipulation. And each of you, as a leader at the beginning, which changes one rule for you, and that little thing doesn't orient your strategy as much as insight or anachrony, but it does provide that one thing that you're special for. And that little change makes it refreshing and interesting. And again, not nearly as important as the clans in Rising Sun, not nearly as noticeable in the asymmetric factions in Scythe, but a good addition nonetheless. And the evidence that you can tweak games with things like this without necessarily having to go all the way uh, like other big games do. You have played this, I think. Yes. I have not played it in quite some time, so that vaguely sounds familiar to me. <laughs> but I have not played it in quite some time. I really like it. Oh, the game, by the way, is by Oles Kynes, which I don't think I have played anything else by him, or Polis Precinct, but I didn't like it. I think that the art by uh, Sebrian Corbella uh, is very very evocative, is cartoonish, it's, it's not a great uh, fancy artistic rendition like Rising Sun or Jacob Zosalski in Scythe, but it is very approachable. And it's by Grey Fox Games. Champions of Midgard tends to be on the euro side of things. Light Euro, but the Euro nonetheless. And often I find that in that realm, asymmetric player power are very risky if they make you choose one strategy. So here, the change is easy enough that you are not beholden to a strategy. While, for example, one of my favorite games, Solkin, the Mayan calendar, 
the expansion provides asymmetric player powers that again there is some discussion of some being overpowered but i haven't played it nearly enough to know i played it once so i have no claims about that but again the problem is that they direct your strategy meaning that in a game as stance and resource based as Tolkien, if you get a bonus for using wood you should use wood constantly and reliably because otherwise you're clicking losing ground compared to people who are leaning into their power and so i'm really worried about games like those that do get into asymmetric player powers and that's the risk of all of this that we're saying today that is the risk of forcing people into strategies and again it's not a hard and well-defined line but it is a line that some games do struggle with my number one game is nations Ooh, good one so it is by a lot of people <laughs> rustin <laughs> hawkinson Nina Hawkinson, Einar Rosen, and Robert Rosen, and it's from Asmodee Games. It's a game where you are different nations, and you are trying to develop over time by choosing different leaders and then getting different colonies and getting advantages on military and things like that. And it is a really solid game. I really enjoy it. I like it even at two and the variable player powers come into effect as you choose different nations that's why i really like that game and think that it deserves a spot on this list i think it's an excellent choice for some reason it escaped my thinking i could see making it number three and in terms of how much i like it i really really like it so i do think that it's excellent. It's another example where you can also play where everyone has the same. So again, more proof that it is a very solid choice. I think that again, it goes to what I was saying a moment ago, that it influences your strategy, but slightly. It gives you a starting difference, but doesn't force you to go into a different strategy. Actually, you can use this trend to do whatever. You can use the extra colony to have a reliable amount of gold with Persia. Or, for example, Greece can get golden ages that are special cards that can give you either stuff or points, and you can play it either way. And it's a very different approach whether you do one or the other. The expansion adds more nations. I don't have it, unfortunately. It's very out of print. The expansion? Yes. And another game that I've played more than I realized. I have to bring it back to the table. Last time I played it with you and Scott, but it was last summer. We have to do more. Okay. So my number one is actually Rex. Rex, Final Days of an Empire, which is, I think, not only my favorite game that I never get to play, but also the perfect example for this Rex is the re-implementation of the original Dune, published by Avalon Hill in uh, 1979, by Bill Eberler, Jack Kitterdeck, and Peter Olotka, maybe another one. Uh, in this edition, it's also by Cardi Konitska, who was the developer and changed a few things. For the longest time, Dune was unavailable. It, it was just republished by Gale Force 9 with Ilya Bararonsky art. I actually prefer Rex. Part of it is because I'm not particularly enamored with the Dune IP, and second, because of some structural differences that were potential variants for Dune, and there are again variants for Dune, and instead there are core rules for Rex. But in general, it's a game where the basic rules you could explain in two minutes, and then everything is about the asymmetric player powers. So the way they interact with very mechanical Euro-style rules, but all of that is drastically changed by the player powers. And that gives a wonderful feeling, which is whenever you play, it feels like every other faction is broken, overpowered, and unfaired. And I think it is a great experience. I don't play it nearly enough as I would like to, when I, we got it, we brought it to Italy over a long summer break and we played it a ridiculous amount of time. It is a frail game in that you need to be in the right mindset, which is, I think, a flaw of games when that it's required, but I still like it. You need to understand that winning is good, but winning alone is better because there are certain mechanisms that are alliance-based and if you devolve into a 3v3 team or 2v2v1 is not exactly how it is supposed to be. You should be 
always ready to drop your allies and seize the victory if you can, but it is great. I think it's a great piece of design. Obviously, the credit for the design uh, should go to the original Dune because that's where the core of all of it comes from. I do like some of the refinement in Rex, but clearly the, the designers of Dune did an incredible job, especially if you consider the period of the design. But I do like the components of the FFG version. Uh, Dallas Mel of Heart is grandiose and not that muted, very serious art in Dune. I love it. Have I played this before? Uh, I think you have at least one, but is one of those games, not surprisingly, given the nature of the game, where you need to be prepared. Like you need to schedule it because it's a six player game that you want to play. No, you haven't. You haven't played this. I didn't think so. I was like, this doesn't sound familiar at all. I've seen it on your shelf quite a few times, and I know that we have mentioned playing it before in the past, but I don't remember ever playing it. It's technically four or even three, I don't know, to six players. I played it once with four, and it was just mediocre. So you want to play it with five or six. It has a lot of individual player powers that you need to know. Again, it's not a game where you pick a hero and you just know need to know your hero you need to know exactly what other people do so it takes a long time to explain and it's a game that can go long and it tends to and it's an incredibly unique experience it's also a game where up to three people out of six can win and i have what 15 recorded games of it and i won it twice <laughs> which oh wow yeah so i'm definitely not good at it it's also a game that can feel unfair despite having very little randomness but when some people can seize on the randomness at the right moment one of the most memorable games on the last round of the last game i had my victory in hand with my ally i go in and the player who's playing this other troop plays the right trader which he had had in hand i could have used on me on a previous battle and didn't and he won there uh, after a three and a half hour game and snatching victory from me but it is a memorable experience and it feels great it's amazing it's an amazing game i I really really like it once we return to some semblance of normal i would really like to play it absolutely and it needs to be scheduled and it's not everyone likes it but we will make this happen. And so that's my number one, Rax, Final Days of an Empire or Dune by Bill Eberler, Jack Kittrich, and Peter Olotka. I like it in the version by FFG 2012 by Cory Konietzka, but also the new one by uh, Gale Force 9 that came out last year looks very neat. I don't anticipate Scott liking this game, though. Uh, I don't remember him liking Rising Sun that much either, Yeah, right? So I don't think. That's putting it mildly, yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't know. This might be a little less stressful in that what you do during the game is a little more straightforward. You don't have, for example, the bidding for battle resolution. For example, one very weird thing of this game is you auction technology cards, but you auction without knowing what they are, but for one person. One person at the table knows what they are, but they normally don't have a lot of buying power. So they can try to influence who's buying what, they can try to help their allies, or they can just give out information. And obviously, if I tell you, oh, you really need this, you should buy that card. Am I doing it just to mess with your brain, or do I want to help you because I fear another player more? So everything that people do in the game, some are more exciting, some are less exciting, but they all feel incredible advantages. Everything that happens is drastically changed by some players, but it's just one player. Every aspect of the game works exactly the same for five of the six players, and one of them has an incredibly powerful power that deals with that specific thing. So there is a little bit to keep track, so I can see Scott not liking that, but by just what you do, you have a larger control on the result of your actions compared to Rising Sun. Mm, Okay. So maybe. So we have to prick him into it. Scott, <laughs> Scott, if you are hearing this, don't listen to what I said. It's a great game. It's my favorite game that I never play. You, you must try it. And it's beautiful. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our episode. So again, we are a newer podcast. We really appreciate 
any and all feedback that you can leave for us on any platform. And we look forward to hearing from you and taking ideas for topics or anything like that. And any questions that you might have for us, we would love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook, Board Game Gambit. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter, even that's not particularly active. And of course, on Board Game Geek under Board Game Gambit and at boardgamegambit at gmail.com. And we answer feedback and questions. Thank you for those of you who have provided such. And we look forward to hearing from you. And thank you for listening. So signing out, it's me, Nathan. And Jackie. Thank you and bye. Bye Bye-bye.